Article 4. The God of Promise. What Jehovah has promised, he will do. By Pastor Dan Gaiman. The wonderful God, whom we seek to love and serve, the mighty God in whose hands the entire universe rests, the eternal God who stepped out of his glory to become a man, to be like his own flesh and blood in the incarnate Son of God, has many names and many titles. He is also deserving of our endless praise. Why? Because he is the God of promises kept. As we observed and commemorated the crucifixion and resurrection of our Passover lamb, we were reminded that the God we love and should obey is a God of promises. All he has promised, he will do. The two greatest promises he has ever made were to send his own son as a sacrifice for our sin and to buy our redemption and to raise him from the dead for our justification. Dear brothers and sisters, we know we can put these two promises under the category of promises kept. Now, we await the promise of his return in glory when he is coronated as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We await the fulfillment of all his many promises to his covenant people. We know from his many examples that our God keeps his promises. So as we journey through this present time of Jacob's trouble and face the future with indomitable faith in Jesus Christ, we do so standing on the promises of our God. What he has promised, he will do. Moses, the servant of the living God, appealed to ancient Israel in the conquest of Canaan to be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. From Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Israelites in America and across the nations of the West have been faced with an uncertain future since March of 2020, when this nation and most of the world came under the pressure, sanctions, and repression of the totalitarian governments ruling America and other nations of the West. As people of faith, we, like the believers who preceded us, can look to Almighty God and trust in His promises. We can face the future with resolute courage, knowing that what God has promised, He will do. The covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will not fail us. History does not lie. Generations before us were triumphant, overcoming, and victorious because they trusted in our sovereign God, the God of Abraham. They lived in the assurance that God's promises to Israel would not fail. The Bible is the source book for the promises God made with Israel, his chosen people. The first and most significant promise made in scripture, God made at the fall. All the primary promises made thereafter in scripture, including in the book of Revelation, God made in connection with his first and original promise. When Adam and Eve willfully disobeyed God, sin entered into the race of Adam. Through sin came death and the curse of eternal separation from God. Adam and all his posterity were forever under the death sentence, facing future judgment and eternal separation from God. This fall of Adam is described in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent entered the garden, beguiled the woman Eve, and tempted her to eat of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve, having been deceived by the serpent, ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in explicit disobedience to God's command. She proceeded to entice Adam to eat of the fruit, which he willfully did. In this awful state, both Adam and Eve fell into horrific sin. 
also known as the transgression of divine law. They now faced a future of death, judgment, and eternal separation from God. In the face of this hopeless future, sin and death reign over every generation of Adam's race ever to live. At this juncture, God made a solemn promise to his children. In Genesis 3.15 contains this promise. It's the first mention of the gospel in scripture. Upon this promise rests all the other major promises, covenants, and pledges found in the entirety of scripture. This promise is known in theological history as the Proto-Evangelium, or first mention of the gospel. Addressing the serpent, God said, And I will put enmity between thee, the serpent, and the woman, beginning with Eve and culminating with the Virgin Mary, and between thy seed and her seed. Jesus Christ, born sinless of a virgin, shall bruise thy, the serpent's head, from Romans 16.20, and thou shalt bruise his heel, the crucifixion of Jesus. This verse encapsulates the first promise of the redemption and is the entire gospel story in its most condensed form. This is the box top verse for all the 31,000 plus verses or pieces of the biblical puzzle. The entire story of the Bible develops from this biblical seedbed. The greatest promise made in scripture and the very essence of our salvation it's encapsulated in this Proto-Evangelium, or first mention of the Gospel in Scripture. There is a lot to unpack with the awesome promise in Genesis 3.15, so let's begin. Who is the serpent in the Proto-Evangelium? The serpent is called the dragon in Revelation 12, verses 3-4. through 4. He's also identified as that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world in Revelation 12.9. Satan is again referred to as that old serpent called the devil and Satan in Revelation 20 verse 2. Saint Paul called him the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. The apostle John called him the prince of this world and the apostle Peter referred to him as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. The Apostle James told us to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The Lord Jesus Christ resisted the temptations of the serpent during the forty days in the wilderness, in Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11, with his wise and intelligent use of Scripture. Why? Because the serpent must flee from the Word of God. Who is the seed of the serpent in the Proto Evangelium? The seed of the serpent, beginning with Cain and continuing through the time of the Genesis Flood, was active in their opposition of the seed of the woman. The enmity, pronounced in Genesis 3.15, continued through history to the time of Noah and the Flood, at which time Jehovah stated this in Genesis 6.17, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. The seed of the serpent survived the flood within the walls of the ark itself. Scripture emphatically declares, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark, to make them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. From Genesis 7.15. The enmity from the Proto-Evangelium 
has always existed and will continue until Satan meets his demise in the lake of fire and brimstone. The age-old enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman continued after the flood with the Canaanites. This evil posterity continued throughout history. How? Esau married two wives from this wicked seed, and his posterity became the primary progenitors of this ongoing war. Jesus himself referred to some of this wicked seed in Matthew 12, verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. In Matthew 23, verse 33, Jesus referred to these snake people, saying, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? The serpent and his offspring have waged an eternal war against the woman, collectively genetic Israel, and the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who is the woman in a proto-evangelium? This question deserves careful scrutiny. There was to be enmity between the serpent and the woman. This enmity, or hostility and hatred, would be manifested from the very beginning. Genesis 3.15 declares that the enmity between the serpent and the woman was to be manifested between the serpent seed and the woman seed. Wait, a woman has no biological seed. Scripture informs us that a child is referred to as his father's seed. Jesus is called the seed of David in Romans 1 verse 3. In Jeremiah 33:26, the entire nation of Israel is referred to as the seed of Jacob. In reference to the woman in Genesis 3:15, her seed implies that the child or offspring of the woman would have no biological father. This is a prophetic announcement of a miraculous conception in the womb of a virgin woman who would bear seed or offspring that would be the serpent bruiser and crush the head of the serpent. Consider this. Eve, the first woman, fell prey to the serpent and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She became a fallen woman, afflicted with sin nature, and allied with the serpent. The enmity that developed between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would pass to another woman in the messianic lineage. Eve was the first woman of the Adamite creation to bear seed in the messianic seed line that would bring forth the seed of the promise, our Lord Jesus Christ, who would bruise or destroy the head of the serpent. Cain and Abel were the first children, fraternal twins born from the woman Eve. The Bible confirms that Cain was of that wicked one, that is, sown by Satan. Cain murdered Abel, the first seed in the messianic lineage that would bring forth Jesus. Every woman in the messianic lineage played a role in the unfolding history of Adam's race up to the Virgin Mary. She was the first woman to ever be with child by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit through a miraculous conception performed by the Holy Spirit. Mary became the only woman in human history to conceive a child outside of the natural use of the male sperm. In so doing, she bore Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, who was without spot, stain, or taint of sin nature. Jesus was born into this world as the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, incarnate God. He was very man and very God. As touching his Godhead, he was fully God. Regarding his manhood, he was fully man. The goal of the serpent and his offspring 
has been to cut off the messianic seed and thus prevent the birth of Jesus Christ from being conceived. Throughout the ages, men have employed every effort imaginable to destroy the male lineage of the messianic seed line from which Jesus Christ would be conceived. The heathen re religions of Canaan provided a temptation for Israelites to offer their children to Molech. In Egypt, the mighty Pharaoh ordered the murder of every male child. King Herod ordered the murder of every male child under the age of two to prevent or cut off Jesus Christ, the principal seed of the woman. Matthew 2, verse 16 through 18, and Revelation 12, verse 4, declares that the dragon, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered as soon as it was born. The child born from the womb of the Virgin Mary was the ultimate target of the serpent in his enmity against the woman and her seed. Irenaeus, a second century church father, indicates that the knot tied by Eve's disobedience was undone by the obedience of the Virgin Mary, the new Eve, in the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus Christ, the serpent bruiser. Recall the prophetic words of Elizabeth as she met Mary following the virgin girl's miraculous conception of the holy child Jesus. Speaking in great affirmation, Elizabeth said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. One theologian noted that the hymn, Ave Maria, refers to the reversing of the sin of Eve. Ave is Eva spelled backwards. Whatever the case on that, Mary's affirmation that she would bear the Christ child was an open declaration of enmity and warfare to the serpent and his seed. This babe, Jesus Christ, was a mortal danger to Satan. To their shame, in 1854, under the direction of Pope Pius IX, the Roman Catholic Church accorded the Virgin Mary an exalted place that is found nowhere in Scripture. The Pope proclaimed this, The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Pope Pius IX Ineffabilis Deus, supreme reason for the privilege of the Immaculate Conception, the Divine Maternity. St. Luke 1 verse 48 records Mary's response to the angel Gabriel in what has come to be known as the Magnificat. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. The Virgin Mary is indeed blessed among women. But please understand that Mary's womb was simply the incubator where the Holy Spirit planted all 46 chromosomes. Mary's egg was not used in the conception of Jesus Christ. Mary was simply the incubator, the virgin woman chosen to bear the seed planted by the Holy Spirit in her womb. The words of the prophet Isaiah, more than 700 years prior, were fulfilled when the Holy Spirit overshadowed and impregnated Mary with the Holy sinless, and perfect seed of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. From Isaiah 7, verse 14. Who is the seed of the woman in the Proto-Evangelium? The singular seed of the woman refers to Jesus Christ. As to the plurality of that seed, 
Let it be known that beginning with Adam and Eve, sans Seth, meaning substitute for Abel, whom Cain slew, there is a genealogical highway or lineage of the people through whom Jesus Christ would descend in his manhood. The first ten generations of this genealogy is the same as those whom Christ came to redeem, found in Genesis 5, verse 1 through 32, or beginning with Seth and ending with Noah in Genesis 5:32. The next ten generations of his genealogy are likewise the same as those Christ came to redeem. These are all found in Genesis, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David in 2 Samuel, Emmanuel, Christ the Lord in Isaiah, and 1 John 3:38. Beginning with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12, and following with Isaac and Rebekah, their son Jacob and his twelve sons, our eternal God built a lineage of those through which the Messiah would come and those people whom the Messiah would redeem. The seed of Abraham was to multiply as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful and make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was promised prophetically that she would be the mother of thousands of millions. And let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate thee. This tremendous sea of people all descended from Abraham and Sarah. You see, it's indisputable that the Bible is written to, for, and about Israel. The people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Israel, and the hundreds of millions of Celtic, Anglo, Saxon, Germanic, Scandinavian, and kindred European peoples descended from them. These are the many who have embraced Jesus Christ in Christianity and the Bible, the people whose art, literature, architecture, sculptures, music, theology, and so on, have been built from scripture. These people are presently very lost, having rejected God, broken his covenant, scorned his laws, and served other gods. Yet they continue to be the subject people for whom Jesus Christ came to redeem. Jesus is their Messiah and Savior. Four Prophecies of the Proto-Evangelium Number one. The promise of enmity between the serpent and the woman is a certainty in the Proto-Evangelium. This hatred was, by extension, very real between the serpent seed and the woman's seed. 3. The woman's seed was to bruise or overwhelm the head of the serpent. He voluntarily laid down his life in death and rose again by his own power. Jesus Christ, the serpent bruiser, severely injured the serpent and took the power of death from the serpent when he arose victoriously from the grave. Hebrews 2, 14-16 expresses it this way, For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. The Apostle John describes how Jesus bruised the serpent in this manner from 1 John 3.8. The devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ himself boldly proclaimed his death and resurrection from the grave in Revelation 1 verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Satan, being angel kind and therefore immortal, 
used the power of death to take dominion away from Adam at the fall. Until Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Satan used the fear of death to keep people in bondage. Jesus Christ forever removed the fear of death from us believers because we know that in Jesus Christ we have eternal, unbroken continuity of life. For when we die, we shall pass from this world into life eternal. Number four, Satan's ultimate doom is to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented forever from Revelation 20 verse 10. This will mark the end of the serpent's warfare against the seed of the woman, because at this point, all of the serpent's seed will have been destroyed, and all of this will prepare us for the restored kingdom of God. The fourth prophecy in Genesis 3.15 was that the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed, something that theologians agree occurred at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The most sinless, innocent person in all of history suffered the most inhumane and torturous death ever designed by the mind of mortals. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ marked the most significant moment in the history of the world. On that single event, the eternal God placed Jesus Christ on the cross to atone for the sins of the people he chose before the foundation of the world. By his death, Jesus Christ vindicated the law becoming of curse for those who were under and condemned by that very law. In saving them, he simultaneously enabled the ultimate restoration of the cursed earth. One day, this will make possible a fit place for the kingdom in a fully redeemed earth, free from the curse of sin. It's impossible for the human mind to imagine the torturous suffering and pain inflicted upon Jesus Christ at Calvary. It was death by a thousand cuts. Physical exhaustion, dehydration, lashes from a whip, loss of blood, enormous other afflictions, and ultimately suffocation. The cross will forever remain the symbol of the worst suffering and sacrifice anyone has ever endured. We pause, bow our heads, and humbly thank our eternal God for the sin debt he paid with his precious blood. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ and are reminded of these words from our Savior from John 3:14-15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Even as our Israelite ancestors looked at the brass serpent in the wilderness of Sinai, were healed of their poisonous snake bite, so sinners called and quickened by God's redeeming grace must look to the cross of Jesus Christ and his redemptive grace to find forgiveness and healing for our sins. As the penitent thief sought repentance and forgiveness at the cross, so too must we look hard at the cross into the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ. It is only through his atonement that we find forgiveness for sins and the complete healing of our souls. Of this we can be sure. What God has promised, he will do. Jesus has promised before his death at Calvary that he would rise from the dead three days later. Matthew 16, verse 21 through 22 records this. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Jesus also prophesied this, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down my, of myself. 
I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. No man in history ever raised himself from the dead. In every case of resurrection to life, someone raised the dead person. In contrast, Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his life in death and rose again by his own power, the single greatest testimony to vindicate his divinity in his resurrection from the dead. What God promised, he did. By his death we are saved from our sin, and by his resurrection our justification is forever sealed in heaven. He is risen. Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ conquered death, hell, and the grave. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now he lives, he lives, he lives. He is waiting for that moment when God the Father will say, It is time. Split the clouds with your glory and establish your kingdom on earth. Jesus Christ will come again. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. From Revelation 22, verse 12. What our God has promised, he will do.